it all again. You'll figure it out. Okay, original saying, questioning the gift. We deny God is love, which is also a denial of the fact that I am lovable. And when God is evicted from the heart, or the heart is uninspired, it gives birth to lust, right? Lust is the result of the eviction of God from the heart. So again, sins against chastity are rooted in that rejection of God or the loss of our identity as sons and daughters. Lust is sexual desire devoid of God's love. And shame rises in the heart because man realizes that his body has ceased to draw from the power of the Spirit. Okay, so... In the last hour, we talked about, you know, that shame about one's own body, or that shame comes in and it interrupts this relationship between the man and the woman. Now this person is a threat to me, all right? We realize that our body has ceased to draw from the power of the Spirit. So even in this quote, we also see the importance of that focus on original solitude. That's that. So, Consequence of Sin. These are from a book by Mary Healy, and this is a Theology of the Body book, a simplified Theology of the Body book that I recommend. It's called Men and Women Are from Eden, and Mary Healy does a very nice job of summarizing the points from the audiences and without oversimplifying and with sort of covering the breadth of what John Paul II covered. Uh, It's a book that I used for my high school class when I taught at Pius um, because I thought it was more fundamental than um, some other books that are out there on Theology of the Body that are really just like a chastity book without being rooted in the entirety of John Paul II's vision. Alright, so the consequences of sin are shame, which is rupture within the human being, which we talked about. Fear, which is rupture between God and man, so we go and hide from God. Conflict, which is the rupture in human relationships, that's that kind of shame that we experience in the face of the other. Labor, which is rupture between man and the world. Now by the sweat of your brow you'll bring forth fruit from the earth. And death. and death. So these five consequences of sin. Shame, fear, conflict, labor, death. Okay, the eyes of both are open. They know they're naked. They sew fig leaves together and make themselves aprons. So shame enters for the first time when man realizes that his body has ceased drawing upon the power of the spirit which raised him to the level of the image of God. Right? Shame is the result of the loss of our identity as sons and daughters. Now the heart tends to lust and to treating the other as an object created for my sake. And that created for my sake is in opposition to man is the only creature that God willed for his own sake. So we talked about yesterday, the day before, when we see a person, we realize that God created this person for their own sake. They have value in themselves. And now because... The heart tends to lust. I see this person and I say, oh, they're just created for my sake and what I want and what I desire. Three kinds of shame. This is also from Mary Healy's reflection. Cosmic shame is related to all creation. Imminent shame is shame within oneself. 
and then relative shame relationship and shame in relation to the other. Shame has this double meaning. This is also kind of review, right? It manifests that man and woman have lost sight of the nuptial meaning of the body. And it also indicates an inherent need to protect the nuptial meaning of the body from the degradation of lust. So shame has that positive aspect of I need to protect myself from the degradation of lust. Which I would also say, because this does like go into that distortion I was talking about where we're kind of like afraid of people, but it protects and preserves the integrity of the gift that I want to make to my husband or to my wife someday. Right? It preserves the integrity of the gift that I want to make to my husband or my wife someday. So John Paul II talks about this second discovery of sex. Okay, so what once enabled communion now seems to impede communion between the man and the woman. The male tendency to dominate and control seems to place the woman at an apparent disadvantage. And there's no longer a communion of persons, but a confrontation of persons. Okay, no longer a communion of persons, but a confrontation of persons. And these are some, like, visuals that I used to use. Um, Like, basically, the top is a healthy relationship. Like, one person gives to the other, that person receives, returning the gift of themselves. But then there are some relationships that we see where one person gives and the other person takes and says, okay, this is great. What am I going to get out of this? Right? This happens a lot like when you have passive partner with like overly controlling partner. And then you have like mutual using of the other person. Right? Today on college campuses, most relationships, a lot of relationships, they just look like this. Two people just decide they're going to hook up. They don't date. They don't decide. They don't discern. It's not about the good of the other. It's just about somebody to be with. So when we talk about the ethos of the gift and sexual ethics, John Paul II bases everything on the integrity of the sign. Right? The integrity of the sign. There has to be an integrity of the sign of the body. The body reveals the person. So having integrity means that I'm able to express who I am through my body. I don't have a need to hide anything from people. Okay, there's also the integrity of the sign of the relationship between men and women, which has to be a truthful sign. So in the Old Testament, the law compromised with lust. The prophets, however, always pointed to the integrity of marriage and to its sign. So even though Moses allowed divorce under certain circumstances, the prophets continued to point to the integrity of marriage and to its sign. So even though Moses allows you to divorce your wife for whatever cause, the prophets continue to say that marriage is the sign of God's love for his people. So marriage is a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. And a fidelity that cannot be revoked. A love that is irrevocable. And permanent and points to a future. God's covenant is a promise of a union in the future. 
promise of the union between God and man that will take place in eternity. And the prophets use marriage as a, as a sign of that covenant, of God's faithfulness, of its irrevocability, of its permanence. John Paul II, for him, the morality of marriage is always understood through the logic of a truthful sign. So the way that men and women interact with each other has to be a truthful sign of the covenant between God and his people. So if marriage is a sign of Christ's love for the church and Christ's love for the church is irrevocable, then marriage is irrevocable. If we allow for divorce and remarriage, then we allow for that promise to be revoked and it becomes an untruthful sign. It's not a truthful sign. And it actually could cause confusion about God's love for us. And we can start to believe that God's love is revocable. Like, God loved me for a while, but now he doesn't love me anymore. He used to love me. Then I didn't clean my room. And now he doesn't love me anymore. So the wisdom literature in scripture advises us to avoid indulging in carnal concupiscence but it doesn't change the ethos, right? We're preparing for the ethos of the gift. So when we talk about the wisdom literature and how it talks about, you know, avoiding sin, etc., 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 it doesn't sort of promote this ethos of the gift. The ethos is changed with the coming of Christ. So the, the wisdom literature talks about, like, how do I find the right wife? Right? Like I think Sirach has some beautiful sections on marriage. But it doesn't change the ethos. It doesn't change what we believe about marriage. Christ changes that when he says that from the beginning it was not so. And before our own personal ethos can change, though, like we have to, I put on quotes, look away. Right? Like we have to start to have self-control and we do need to like develop self-mastery, right? Self-mastery is developed in that living relationship with our Lord. But before we can actually look at somebody with love, we have to gain self-mastery. Okay? And it is a necessary step. Because sometimes when we like I know people who are devotees to theology of the body and like Christopher West is, he says this and I drives me crazy. I think he does great work. He's done a great work at promoting the theology of the body. But every time he gives a talk, he like talks about staring at himself in the mirror naked in the morning. Which drives me crazy. Because he's like, you should get up in the morning and be like, behold. I'm like, I'm fat. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) You know, And it's like a way of saying, I'm just going to start to look at people with love instead of looking at them with lust, as if I can just turn a switch on in my head. Before we can look at people with love, we have to gain self-mastery, which means we do avoid occasions of sin. We do practice custody of the eyes. We do practice custody of the heart so that we come to know ourselves in Christ first. And the more we know ourselves in Christ, then we can look at somebody with mercy. Right, then we can look at somebody with mercy. 
So what's wrong with looking? These are just, this is high school slides, so you can use these lines if you want to. Right? Um, we look in conformity with who and what we are. Right? So the look, John Paul II says, determines the intentionality of our existence. Right? What we look at determines the intentionality of our existence. So the way that we look at another person, it reveals the intention of our heart. It reveals the intention of our heart. And we can think about this because we're talking about looking with lust, so we think about, okay, the person who looks with lust, it reveals the fact that he wants to use them, etc. But our look, also the positive look, determines the intentionality of our existence. We can look at somebody with compassion and communicate great truth. You know, and so many of our kids in our schools, they need someone to look at them with compassion. Right? Jesus' look determined the intentionality of his heart. And so when he encounters the woman who's caught with adultery, who's caught in adultery, right, and we walk through that meditation, right, what happens? She gets pulled out and she's in the middle of this crowd and everybody's looking at her and accusing her with their look. This whole crowd is looking at her and they're confirming for her, you have no value outside of your body. They're confirming for her, you are a bad person. They're confirming for her that she is a grave sinner. And then Jesus bends down to write in the sand so that he can catch her eye, so that she'll follow his finger up his arm to look into his eyes and see the intentionality of his look. And his look says, you are my beloved daughter. And it changes the way she sees herself. When she sees that he looks at her with love, it changes the way she sees herself. She's able to see herself through his eyes because she comes to know herself in relationship with him. And it stands out in the crowd. You know, all of our conversions begin with that look of love from our Lord. It's our Lord who shows us who we are. And when we allow ourselves to see his look and allow his look of love to speak through our own sinfulness and through our own shame, it's then that we can actually change the way that we see ourselves. And we, if we are going to be effective preachers of the gospel, teachers of the faith, we have to have that look of love. Because the look of love will change the way our kids respond to us. And it might, but it might take time. It might take a year before they realize this person actually cares about me. But when they realize it, then something changes. So looking with lust, it denies the gift of God's love, the gift of the other, the gift of life itself. Right? The look of love affirms all of those things. So temptation versus sin, this is like an old phrase that I used to use. The first look is for you, the second is against you. That's from this Muslim guy that I stayed with when I was in Tunisia studying Arabic. Um, because it is a question like people will have is like, okay, so what does it mean? Like, when have I committed a sin? 
when did I look at this person with lust? Sometimes somebody is really beautiful and striking, and people do. They're drawn to beautiful people, and they stare at them, and they're a beautiful person, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily looking at them as if they want to unite with themselves to them so as to become one flesh. They're looking at them because they're strikingly beautiful. They may look at them because they're really charismatic. You know, like sometimes there are people that I encounter and I'm just like drawn to them and I'm like, I'm supposed to know this person and I might like keep looking at them trying to figure out, do I know them already? Like, am I supposed to know, like what's going on? And then I have a conversation with them later and it becomes very obvious why I'm supposed to know them. And, but it, like, I'm not looking at them with lust. I'm just looking at them with kind of like awe and fascination and trying to figure out why I'm supposed to know them. And so, so it is a place of, and it's a hard thing to explain, and we just keep trying to explain it and clarify it. But as teachers, we have to be conscious of like teaching the truth and not falling into laxity or rigidity. Okay? Because sometimes young people can grow up in an environment where they're perfectionists and they're really like prone to scrupulosity, and they think they're committing a mortal sin every time they look at a girl for more than two minutes. When really they're just like, how does she braid her hair that way? Or something like that. You know, so they try to like teach the truth about love without falling into laxity or rigidity. Struggling against concupiscence helps us enter into the Paschal Mystery. Okay, as we struggle against concupiscence, we enter into the Paschal Mystery. We learn to say no to sin so that we can say yes to our Lord. Okay, so there is a certain amount of self-denial and there is a certain amount of suffering that takes place when we deny ourselves in order to look at our Lord. Okay, but that self-denial is always self-denial for the sake of looking at our Lord. Okay, and we need to, like, be clear about that. Sometimes we just, we skip steps. But self-denial is for the sake of making space for our Lord. Fasting is for the sake of making space for our Lord. Like we do it so that we're hungry and we realize in our hunger we're dependent and in our dependence we're, dependence on our, we're dependent on our Lord. Fasting for the sake of self-discipline is simply what athletes do. Fasting for the sake of looking at our Lord is for the sake of growing in holiness. And when I was in the seminary, there was this group of guys and they all got into fasting and they were first-year seminarians, and they think they're John Vianney. They're not John Vianney. And so they're all fasting and all this stuff. Every single one of those guys left the seminary. All of them. But, but they got like, caught up in this idealism of spiritual disciplines before they came to know Christ. You know, and we have to come to know Christ. And it's, I think it's really important because even when we promote mortifications and things like that, like you really need to be spiritually mature when you take on mortifications. There's a certain amount of self-discipline that's just self-discipline. Like, don't eat a whole pan of scotcheroos, self-discipline. But I'm going to give up meat, period, for the sake of growing in holiness when I don't really know Jesus. It doesn't work that way. No, it's for the sake of knowing our Lord. And inviting our Lord into our life. And if we can't fast for the sake of knowing our Lord, then we probably don't need to do that. Okay, also, if you're advising people who are struggling with impurity, say, okay, 
because um, it's going to come up. It comes up. And sometimes we say, well, you should start fasting. So here's somebody who manages their stress through acting out in sins of impurity. And then you say, okay, I want you to stop drinking Coke, and I want you to stop like any other stress relievers in your life. We're going to get rid of those too. All you're doing is taking away all their natural coping mechanisms. And it's not always the path. Okay, mortification can be like no screens. That's a good mortification, right? There are other modes of stress relief, but we don't want to like start beating up our bodies when what we're going to do is take away all our other natural coping mechanisms for dealing with stress. Okay, does that make sense? <laughs> right? Because um, sometimes it's like where we go first, and I'm like, oh, stop doing that. Like people will come to me and they'll be like, I'm fasting, I'm doing all this stuff, and it's not working. I'm like, go eat McDonald's. <laughs> um, but, okay, so we got that. So the lustful look is sexual desire divorced from the nuptial meaning of the body. Okay, it seeks to possess the other as an object. Okay, with regard to one's own spouse, John Paul II says, it's possible for a husband to even look at his own wife with lust. So marriage does not justify lust. Okay, marriage does not justify lust. We still have to teach, if we're teaching about marriage, we have to teach that marriage is about like this complete gift of self to the other person. Marriage is not the free-for-all where now you can do whatever you want in the area of human sexuality. Okay, it's still a place of mutual self-giving and it doesn't justify lust. So as he says, it's possible to look at one's own spouse as an object, as property, and to deny the gift. To overcome lust, we must attain purity of heart and open ourselves to receive it as a gift of grace flowing from Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, purity of heart we receive as a gift of grace flowing from Christ's death and resurrection. So again, this line from Theology of the Body fits into the schema that I talked about that Pure Hope has taken in their perspective. Okay, and I haven't reviewed all their materials, but Pure Hope does have like parenting things that you can send on the parents, and they have a lot of good information. Understanding the words of Christ. So we have to contend with the habits of Manichaeism. Manichaeism is a belief that all matter is evil. Okay, and the body has an anti-value. Christianity says the body and the sex have a value that is not yet appreciated. Okay, we don't believe all matter is evil. We don't believe that sex is evil. We believe that it has a value that's not yet appreciated. So this has to constantly be proclaimed too. Okay, oftentimes people are confused about the church's sexual ethic. And sometimes very faithful people take positions that are more rigid than the church. Okay, and so like I just heard about like a women's group where somebody's propagating the idea that you should always want to have a baby when expressing conjugal love with your husband and you should only express conjugal love with your husband when you want to have a baby. Okay? Not the church's teaching. Okay? It's not the church's teaching. And it's not what John Paul II reflects on in Love and Responsibility either. Okay? So we can go like 
overboard. Um, like with, with regard to that, I have this friend Todd Bowman, who's a neuropsychologist in uh, Kansas City, and he has this O model that he uses, which is really pretty interesting. So he takes a triangle, and he says, so there's three things going on. There's uh, procreation, union, or bonding. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this to fertility, and I'm going to make this pleasure. Okay, like all three things, like they're all elements of human sexuality, right? <laughs> so when this is at the top of the triangle, like it's actually more healthy for you as a human person. Because when bonding is at the top of the triangle, then you have this chemical called oxytocin, which is released. And oxytocin is a very complex protein in the brain that leads to lasting joy. At least the lasting joy. It's the chemical in the brain that binds you to another person. It's the chemical in the brain that is released in a baby's brain when the mother's breastfeeding them. It's the chemical in the brain that's released when you feel understood by somebody. Okay, it's this chemical in the brain that binds you to another person. Okay, so when bonding is the principle, then oxytocin is released and it's much more healthy. Okay, some people will take their triangle and they put pleasure at the top. We'll put, they put bonding down here. When that happens, <clears throat> this other chemical, dopamine, becomes the principal chemical. Dopamine is a very simple protein that makes you feel good for a little while and then it goes down and then you're and then you have a dopamine crash. Okay, you can have a dopamine crash. If you want an example of a dopamine crash, it's when you feed your kids Mountain Dew and then after about three hours they're just like got nothing. Right? It spikes the dopamine, the dopamine comes back down below normal in the crash. Okay, that's what happens when Pleasure becomes the top of the pyramid. Okay? There also can be the case of when fertility is at the top of the pyramid. This is like the Puritan distortion. Okay, and when fertility is at the top of the pyramid, like really like neither of these chemicals are that much in play. And there are people who live with fertility at the top of the pyramid, and they're usually not very happy. They're the people where you're like, tell me your love story. Why is that important? We stayed together. And then we wonder why people aren't going, I want to be like them. You know, like when you have joy in joyful marriages. So, so that's his own model. And there's, um, he's actually, he's going to be speaking at a conference in Omaha with me on October 2nd and 3rd. And his his talk would be really very good. Where at? Um, I don't know where it's going to be yet. It's going to be in Omaha at a parish, I think. Are they going to advertise it? Yes. It's co-sponsored by the Diocese of Lincoln, oh, which means I'm not charging them a fee to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just putting, sponsored by the Diocese of Lincoln, Archdiocese of Omaha, Catholic Mutual Group, and Integrity Restored, I think. Okay. All right. Christ calls us to a real and deep victory over lust. Purity must mature from the negative turning away to the positive assertion of the value of the dignity, the body, and sex. So we said before, like, in order to love greatly, we have to develop self-mastery, which means turning away 
guarding our eyes, guarding our thoughts, guarding our hearts. But eventually, as we're transformed in Christ, we get to that assertion of the value and dignity of the body and sex. Okay, it is possible for us to get to that point where when we see somebody who may be dressed immodestly or whatever it is, and we just simply see like a very hurt person who thinks their only value is in their body. Okay, it's possible for us to get there. And this, I think, is very important for our redressing rooms at proms and for things like this. Okay, because sometimes we objectify the girl more than the boys are when they show up for prom and they're in an immodest dress and we're like, I can't believe you came out of the house like that. Come in here, honey. And we throw all this stuff on them. Like, here, let me cover you with fabric and wrap you in a drape and then I'll send you back out to the dance. Being a little bit sarcastic. But we do do that because we need to, we want to promote modesty, but we also want to tell this person that you are beloved daughter because the reality is that, like, she probably has never heard that. And she needs to know that. And sometimes we objectify as much as the boys do. And when we're condemning and we're not speaking out of love, we become, we're just like those people that picked up the stone to throw at the adulterous woman. And they're actually looking at her with lust as they're condemning her. And so that purification of heart means that we look at them with love. We see that they're a beloved daughter, even if they don't recognize that value in themselves. So I wrote an article on this on theporneffect.com called She's a Daughter, Not a Trigger. It caused great havoc among the Steubenville people. (laughs) So it was good, though. People were like, this priest doesn't know what he's talking about. Somebody else was like, I've been in recovery for five years, and what he says is actually... Right. So I was like, yes. Okay. <laughs> so lust is not completely suffocated the nuptial meaning of the body, but only habitually threatened it. We can reclaim self-mastery. Who is responsible to maintain the balance between men and women? And John Paul II says, man seems to have a particular responsibility for maintaining the balance. Okay, Because men are more likely to look at somebody else with lust. Um, today, again, these are stereotypes that sometimes aren't helpful Okay, when we talk about impurity and like who looks at pornography and things like that. So I think I might have talked about that earlier in the week. I did. Okay, good. So Christ calls us to redemption. Lust is not the final word. We're not totally depraved. Christ calls us from outside, which means he calls us to an objective standard. But when we meditate on his word, we experience that standard from the inside. We start to be transformed by him. Right? What Christ wills, Christ enables. So when Christ says, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, that means it's possible. And he will enable it. When Christ goes to the crippled man and he says, Stand up and walk, he stands up and walks. So when Christ says to us, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, he enables it. Right? But it's enabled in relationship with him. And that relationship with him comes in the form of redemption. And we will talk about that tomorrow. Right now I'm going to go to questions because we have a full question box. Okay? So that's all on original sin. How do you address questions about God's justice? 
with mercy, you seem to emphasize Jesus accepts me and loves me. What about the fact that there are consequences for what I've done? Justice. Okay, so, is God more just or more merciful? Well, he's not more either. They're the same thing in God. God's perfectly simple. Okay, God's perfectly simple. So, there is God's justice, right? Which means there is punishment that is a consequence of sin, and we have to live with the consequences of our sin, right? People who have had sins committed against them live with a lot of consequences to sin. People who have committed their own sin, they have to live with the consequences of those sins, and it makes it more difficult to live a life of holiness, you know, one of the most rewarding thing about working with people who have addictions is either they're going to go to hell or they're going to be a saint. Because they're kind of so, their brain is like so like messed up. Like if they fall backwards, they fall all the way backwards. So they're either going to be completely surrendered to God or they're down here. Um, and when you watch them, it's like whew, amazing when they start to have that conversion. So... I lean towards God's mercy because if I ask somebody what's more important, to love or to be loved, and they say to love, they already haven't heard the gospel proclaimed. And so if we have not heard the gospel proclaimed, then are we completely accountable for our actions? So, we need to proclaim the gospel as if for the first time, especially in our time, because we need to hear the gospel proclaimed. And when we get into matters of justice, there are all kinds of mitigating factors, and the Catechism teaches this, that when it comes to a mortal sin, a mortal sin is something that we have full knowledge, full freedom, and... It's grave matter. Okay. So it's grave matter. We have full knowledge that it's grave matter, and we have full freedom in committing that sin. And so we have a generation of people that don't really have full knowledge that something's grave matter because of an insufficient catechesis. We have people who grew up with a bad example of their parents. We have children who are coming to our Catholic schools whose parents don't go to Mass, and we're teaching them that not going to Mass is a mortal sin, and so their parents are going to hell if we're right. And their choice is either father's right and my parents are going to hell or father might not be right and my parents have a chance to go to heaven. You know, and it puts the kids in this like horrible position where they have to figure all that out. So, so the circumstances of our lives are very difficult. And that can mitigate a lot of things. You know, I've never met somebody who really has struggled and entrenched in sin who hasn't also had a ton of sin committed against them in their life. And so, proclaiming God's mercy is the first step to conversion. That's why I emphasize God's mercy over God's justice, because it's the first step to conversion. The prodigal son has a conversion when? When he's in the pigsty? No. No. He has an intellectual conversion in the pigsty and he decides he's going to go back to his father but he has to figure out what he can say to his father to get his father to accept him back and the best he's hoping for is to be a servant. And so he like makes up a speech 
He's lying in the pig's spot. He makes up a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. Okay, that sounds good. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Yeah, that's really good. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, got it. So he starts walking back to the father. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he's like practicing over and over again like you do when you're getting ready to go like talk to your superiors or your wife. <laughs> father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he gets back, and his father runs to him. Like, that's totally unexpected. And then his father, em- like, starts to embrace him, and he's like, stop, I need to make my speech. Father, I'm sending something against you. I no longer deserve to call your son. Stop, interrupts him. Like, stop right there. Put a robe on him. Put shoes on his feet. Put a ring on his finger. My son was dead, and now he's alive. My son was dead, and now he's alive. And he hears the word, my son, and that changes his heart. That's when he has a conversion. The conversion is not in the pigsty. The conversion is when the father embraces. And so when we proclaim God's justice, we're trying for the pigsty conversion. You know, you're going to be punished for that. There's going to be consequences for that. And you're, going to, you're going to be living in the pigsty. But when we proclaim Christ's mercy, we're opening up the space for that heart conversion that happens in the embrace of the Father. You know, and literature reveals the same thing. Like, Les Miserables is the greatest story of God's mercy that converts somebody's life. Dude steals all this stuff, gets caught by the police, goes back, and the priest says, oh no, I gave that to him, and I also am giving you this and this and this and this and this. And then filled with this like love that he doesn't know what else to do with, he goes out and he starts to live a life of charity. You know, that's what leads to conversions. So evangelization happens through the proclamation of Christ's mercy. And God's justice is often an obstacle to conversion for people because they get so focused on the fact that God can't possibly love me because I've done all these things and there's all these consequences. But the church has built-in mercy. We have indulgences. We have pilgrimages. We have this year of mercy. The whole point of the year of mercy is that we need to start again from Christ's mercy. Father, when teaching students about sacraments, what distinction do you suggest be made between matrimony and and marriage. Thank you, and God bless you. Okay, so people are starting to say that the church should only talk about matrimony and not use the word marriage. Um, But when teaching kids about sacraments, I think the important thing to emphasize is that marriage is a sacrament when what? Between a husband and wife in union with God to bring another child into the world. So, wait. What does in union with God mean? The sons and daughters. The sons and daughters. It's a sacrament between two baptized people, period. Okay, marriage is a sacrament between two baptized people, period. Because we don't, that's what the church teaches. That's what the catechism says. Marriage is a sacrament when two people are baptized, period. Okay, marriage is not a sacrament because it takes place at St. John's. Marriage is a sacrament because two people are baptized. Because sometimes we get like 
if you have your marriage in the church, that means God's in your marriage. If you don't get married in the church, God's not in your marriage. But if two Lutherans get married by a judge, we believe their marriage is a sacrament. Yeah. And we have to be consistent about what we believe and clear about what we believe. Because we don't believe that marriage is a sacrament because it takes place in St. John's and Father is the witness. We believe marriage is a sacrament because two people are baptized. The church says you have to get married according to Catholic form as a matter of ecclesiastical discipline. Okay, the requirement to get married according to Catholic form has only existed since the Council of Trent. Before the Council of Trent, there was no such requirement to get married according to Catholic form. The church simply recognized marriage as it happened in society. So if you look at the history of the rite of marriage, it's not it's very all over the place. Because it was the most inculturated ritual in the church. Because the church recognized marriage as it happened in society. And so we have to be clear when we teach the sacrament of marriage that a marriage between two Lutherans in front of a judge is a marriage, and it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament because two people are baptized. And so you have a baptized man and a baptized woman, that's a marriage. Okay? Two men can attend, they can attend marriage, but it's just a friendship. Okay? Because of all these other things. And so that's the most important thing to emphasize when we talk about this, because the church could say we don't require a canonical form anymore. And this is something a lot of canon lawyers in Rome are asking for, because it's just complicating things. And I know two Catholic people who didn't get married in the church, had never been married to anybody else. They've been married for like 20 years. They've raised their kids up in Catholic schools, just they never found a priest that said, hey, you're not married in the church. We need to get you married in the church. And so now we're going to marry them in the church. And in the process of doing so, we say, well, we have to do the ceremony over again because you were never really married and you've actually been committing adultery for the last 20 years. That doesn't really seem like mercy. And canon law would allow us to just simply say, we give you permission to be married outside the church 20 years ago, and we recognize your marriage from the beginning. We can do that. Okay, we can do that. So, and that also means that these two people who are baptized, right, like they have to be in a relationship with God before they're in a relationship with each other. And the grace of the sacrament of matrimony is dependent on the activation of baptismal grace in their own lives. Because the grace of the sacrament of marriage is also something that's theologically, like, it's not clear. And sometimes people make stuff up. And it drives me crazy when they say, like, there's special graces that keep you from fighting with your husband. I don't really know about that. <laughs> like, I don't know if there's this, like, special grace of the sacrament of marriage outside of baptismal grace, which it results in charity, that keeps you from fighting with your husband. I don't know. You, you tell me. Um, but the grace of the sacrament of marriage is like an ordering of our baptismal grace within a vocation between a man and a woman. So the bond between them, the natural love between them, becomes divine charity. Right? It's the reception of God's grace into my heart and then it's ordered towards another person in a particular way within the bond of marriage. Priesthood is 
The grace of the sacrament of holy orders is a particular configuration to Christ, and so it's an ordering of baptismal grace in relationship with our Lord in a permanent way that conforms me to him in such a manner that I might be in persona Christi while performing the sacraments. You know, those vocational sacraments, the effect of the grace, it's, it's, always, it's not always particularly clear. My sacramental theology teacher, he gave us this sheet, you know, and it says baptism, the effect is divine life, removal of original sin. Marriage, the effect is, um, it's not really clear. Like, we haven't reflected on it a lot. Pope Benedict says he was trying right up until the end of his pontificate to ask the question, if a living faith is necessary to contract a sacramental bond. He kept asking over and over again, the Roman Rota, to determine if a living faith was necessary to contract a sacramental bond. Because there were a lot of people who didn't have a living faith, they got married in the church and were treating it as an unbreakable union. But they never had a living faith, so was the grace of baptism active? If the grace of baptism wasn't active, did they contract a sacrament? Like, these are the questions. And I think they're good, legitimate questions. Because if it wasn't, and you could prove it, the problem is proving it, then that marriage could be dissolved, and then that would free up these people to get married again. So, like, just that question is, like, the most important thing about marriage as a sacrament is that these two people are living out their baptism, and they're in union with our Lord. So, like, marriage preparation, most important thing that can happen, conversion. And, like, surrendering our lives to our Lord. Okay, sorry, I just, I get fired up about that topic. Okay. Is there a difference between the authoritative law paradigm and tough love? So, like, the authoritative law paradigm. So, it says, what I said was, the Father is the seat of authority and law. Um... Which isn't the same as the father is an authoritarian figure. And so tough love, again, has to be tempered by mercy. Like tough love has to be tempered by mercy. And I've talked to a lot of psychologists about this and how sometimes, like when parents practice tough love on a child who has a lot of shame, it just compounds their shame and it increases their behavior. Because the answer to shame is mercy. Mercy is what speaks into our shame. Tough love has a tendency to compound our shame. Because our shame is the result of, I see myself differently than the world sees me. I believe I'm a bad person even though people tell me I have the potential to be good. So tough love has a tendency to compound that. And mercy speaks into it. So, like, that would be the difference, I would say. Some people do tough love really well. Some people, not so well. Sometimes, like, there are adults I've talked to who had sexual abuse in their childhood. Their parents never knew. And then their parents take a tough love approach to them, and it just kind of compounded things over the years. Yesterday, you mentioned how the Islamic view of God as a mono-being does not allow for him to be a loving God. I was wondering about Judaism, particularly for before Jesus, God had not been fully revealed as a trinity, but there was a sense of God as loving, such as in the Psalms and prophets, even though they emphasized God as one. Would the foreshadowing of the trinity have helped them to understand the concept of God's love, at least in part? 
Um, I would say that the Psalms and the Prophets are inspired. And so you have this concept of God as loving, or as a father, or as a mother. Like, like there's the image of, you know, I weaned you from my breast. Um, things like that. This image of God as a parent in Judaism. But Judaism remained a religion that was highly um, dependent on law. And to be a good Jew meant you followed the law. It's also why within Judaism there were like different branches of Judaism where you have the Pharisees who are very much like you follow the law, that's all you do. And then the Sadducees, they believe something different about resurrection. And then you had the Essenes, and the Essenes were a community that existed just before our Lord, coming out of like the wisdom literature tradition, who practiced celibacy and like this more like open to that kind of loving community, etc. Um, and so you did have those different branches. And in Islam, like there's fundamentalist Islam, which I think is actually most consistent with their theology. Um, where it's all about law and God is this master and we are slaves. Sufism is a branch of Islam that's like Islamic mystics and they would have a more sort of loving approach. Um, it's the best I got on that. Muslims also, like they would say that Jesus messed up religion because you had the law and everything was good and then Jesus comes along and he abolishes the law and he proclaims love and then everything gets like distorted and then the Moses or Muhammad came back to restore the law that's their narrative father it's more clear to me of adam's original solitude than in the garden naming the animals being alone with god without woman than woman than woman's eves she would have experienced original solitude uniquely exclusively and unrepeatable as woman but you could explain more how so original solitude again like original solitude is a term that refers to the relation that exists between god and human beings so in the beginning when john paul ii reflects on it he reflects on it in terms of adam before he encounters his wife but when he encounters his wife she also has the characteristic of being open to god being in relation with god being a daughter of god and she knows the same God that he knows. And she is unique, unrepeatable, etc. Um, and so the scriptures don't reflect on her experience of being alone because from her creation she was both in union with God and with her husband. And so the scriptures don't have that space for the reflection, but I would say everything that we reflect on with regard to Adam applies to Eve as well. What are your thoughts about high school dating? <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> so I think every parent has to establish this with their children, right? And kind of figure that out with their children. Frankly, I think that today, like, people aren't dating at all. And I think that's a problem, too. So... So, like, group dating is good, whatever it is. But I know people who have fallen in love when they were in ninth grade, and they started dating in ninth and they're married. They've been married for 50 years. Like, it's beautiful. I think that's a beautiful thing. 
Um, like one of the worst things to suffer is a broken heart from your first love. So we can protect them from that broken heart by saying, don't date until you're ready to get married. Then they're like afraid of dating. But also it could open the space to like, you fall in love with somebody and they make this impression on you that lasts for your whole life. You know, but I think that probably should be part of the conversation when you're talking to young people about dating because you never forget the first person you fall in love with. And if you really fall in love with in high school and then things don't work out, you're going to be like 30 years into your marriage. You're going to have a dream about your high school girlfriend. You're going to have all these emotions. Your heart's going to get moved and all of that stuff. And it's just like, ugh. No, or maybe that's just me. But, <laughs> but I mean, I do. Like, I experienced that. I was in love with a girl when I was in high school. And sometimes I dream about her. And it's not an erotic dream. It's just like I dream that I meet her on a street. And she says, I'm happy. You're happy with your life. And I have this rush of oxytocin in my dream. And I wake up and I'm like, oh, is that real? Like, what's going on? Oh. And it gets confusing. You know? And the way God designed us was that we would fall in love with one person and get married and move on. You know, today we delay marriage so much that people fall in love with multiple people. And it actually, neurologically, it causes brain confusion. Um, and an inability to bond. You know, but that bond isn't just a bond that happens because people have sex. That bond happens because they fall in love. And those chemicals, those bonding agents happen because you fall in love. You know, sometimes we talk about premarital sex and we're like, it's like you take a piece of tape and you put it on all these people and you can't form as big a bond. But the bond, like those chemicals are released just when you fall in love. It's not just in intercourse that they're released. So... So I think, you know, that's the reason to guard your heart because, like, you want to fall in love with the person because if you fall in love with them, they're going to stick with you in your memory for the rest of your life. And sometimes it's a beautiful thing. You know, like John Paul II was in love with a woman. That's fairly well known. And, uh, and there's actually, there's this reflection he gave to a bunch of Polish pilgrims that's amazing. Um, but it was never published in any language. It was just, it's in Polish in the Acta Apostolica Sedis and that's it. It was this Italian found it and he translated it and he put it in a book. Um, but the beginning of it, he's talking about how from the time he was a young priest, this spiritual director often said to him, perhaps God gave you this person. And who he's talking about is this woman that he was in love with when he was young. And, uh, but if he had never been in love with the woman, I don't think he could have written this. You know, if I hadn't been in love with a woman, I don't think I could teach the way I teach. Because there is a point of reference for things sometimes. Um, and being in love is part of being, it's just part of life. We fall in love with people. So, anyways, my thoughts about high school dating, that's about all I'm going to say. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's horrible. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. But people have to have, like, standards and boundaries. And they have to understand, like, what they're doing. And they have to like be educated about love and falling in love. And what it's like to fall in love. They should be taught, this is how you fall in love. Somebody makes an impression on your heart, and then it creates a desire, and you move towards them, and you find out, and then you have the joy. <laughs> I mean, they should, we should teach them that. Because they don't know that. <clears throat> and there's a bunch of college girls sitting around in the chapel waiting for some guy to walk in. Make a triangle with the tabernacle. Sometimes you just fall in love by going on dates.
Why did Adam and Eve's sin affect all of humanity? Their lack of trust caused us to be born with this lack of trust. So, St. Paul says, like, just as all died in Adam, so all are redeemed in Christ. And that's about all I'm going to say. You know, because there are lots of different theories of original sin. We can talk about different theories of original sin. But there's this idea of corporate sin in which, like, one person's sin affects all of society. And I think that's true. You know, like, if I have personal sin in my life, it affects how I interact with everybody else because I have shame and it gets in the way and I start treating people bad and then they get treated bad and then they start spreading the sin around. Like, one person's sanctity can save a whole society, too. Like, this is what, like, mystics talk about. You know, like, and even in Genesis when... Abraham says, if there is like a hundred just men, will you save the city? If there is just 50, if there is just 10. And so we do like live as a communion of persons and one person's sanctity affects a whole bunch of people. One person's sin affects a whole bunch of people. And we see that inherently. And so the myth, right, the myth we talked about is there to explain a reality and Genesis is falls under the um, scriptural genre of myth. And so like this story explains the state of concupiscence that we all live in. And, but if we weren't sinners, we couldn't become saints. I, I cannot know joy if I don't know suffering. I'm going to have to bring in, there's this amazing quote that I used in my thesis. Um, and he talks about how, like, if he never experienced Calvary, he would never know the joy of Easter Sunday. And, uh, and so, and we have to remember that the state of redemption is better than the state of original innocence. The state of redemption is the better than the state of original innocence. That'll be in the lesson tomorrow. Did Adam and Eve participation in the con- participate in the conjugal act before the fall? Who w- would they have had children before the fall? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there. I think I think Augustine talks about that actually. But it gets into all kinds of like when people talked about it. It's all theological speculation. And it's, in, it's, it's infused with Jansenism and it's infused with other things. Like People would say, well, they would have had the conjugal act, but there would have been no pleasure involved. It would have just been like a means of fertilizing the egg so that they could have a baby, and that would have been it. But they must not have done it because they didn't have babies till after the fall. So I don't know if they did. If they did, it would have been like perfect harmony. I'll let your imaginations figure that out. There was discussion of both working on our relationship with God and fostering adequate relationships with people. I find people... Okay, this one was yesterday. Okay. Um, I think that's all the questions. Oh, no, there's two more. I feel like... I'm going to pull this out. I'm going to be like... Number 562. You win. How does this translate to people who are not called to marriage, children, or religious life? And are received as selfish. So, this question is going to be answered in the next two days.
All right, so because yeah, it's gonna be answered in the next two days. I'm not gonna answer it today because it's gonna be answered in the next two days, and um, it takes too long to answer the question. <laughs> All right, but stay tuned. With in vitro fertilization, we have put ourselves in a moral dilemma. Extra embryos are frozen. Is it wrong to have these embryos implanted? What else do we do with these locks? <clears throat> so I wrote a paper on embryo adoption when I was in Rome, and it's a very complicated situation. Lots of people have different opinions. Um, so <clears throat> the moral principle involved is that it is morally licit to assist the marital act in achieving the pregnancy, but not to replace the marital act in achieving a pregnancy. So you can assist, but not replace. So there are certain methods of assisting, like people can do insemination, okay? But it has to assist the marital act. So there's a very specific way it's done. Yeah, it's very romantic. The couple has to go to a hotel that's in vicinity of their doctor's office. They have to express conjugal love using a perforated condom, and then they collect the semen, and then they go to the doctor, and the doctor gives the semen a little boost, right? It's like an air assault mission, right? You have to help them get to the objective, okay? Sorry. Anyways, so just help the soldiers get to the objective. Um, so that's acceptable in moral that's acceptable to do and then there are like questionable there's like zift and gift and zygote inter fallopian tube transfer and gamete inter fallopian tube transfer um most of those people say are replacing not assisting so when somebody has done in vitro fertilization then we are left in this dilemma of you have all these frozen embryos that we believe God does still infuse a soul at conception. So you have all these frozen embryos. Now, can you have them implanted? So this is the so this is the best formulation I'm going to give you. Okay, this is the position of Edward Furton, and I have a whole book, a bioethics book, that just deals with this question. If you're interested. So Ferton's position is the one that I agree with, which is that if you can do it and you can avoid participating in the industry at the same time, okay, because essentially what happens is clinics that do in vitro fertilization, they do in vitro fertilization, and then they also have embryo adoption as an additional service. Okay, so they're just making like all this money. Because they get paid a bunch of money to do the in vitro fertilization, they end up with all these extra embryos, and then the people spend a lot of money to adopt an embryo, and they're just raking it in, okay? And it's become an industry. It's like, I mean, you could say it's analogous to human trafficking. So, um, so if you can do it without participating directly in the industry, and you are... N so another distinction, and I can't remember why, I'll have to find my paper is you have to be fertile so that you're not replacing the marital act in this adoption process. So it can't be like we can't have a baby and so we're going to go do this. Like the couple would actually have to be fertile and just choosing to adopt 
as a choice rather than we have no other options. We're going to do this to replace the marital act in our own lives. Okay, because then they're replacing and not assisting. So for it to be an adoption that's actually like I'm seeking to rescue this person, they would have to be fertile. Okay, which also makes it kind of complicated. Because most people who are fertile wouldn't choose to elect to adopt an embryo unless maybe it's their nephew or something like that. That, could, that's, that can happen. If they do this, then the child must be raised by the couple that adopts the child or rescues the child. So what if... This is Germaine Grisey's example. Okay, so there's a woman who had a couple of abortions, got pregnant, then she gave up her embryos and her embryos got frozen or whatever, however it worked. Okay. So she did in vitro frozen embryos. Then her sister wants to redeem the embryo, but she doesn't want to raise the baby. So she finds a couple that will raise the baby. And so she rescues the embryo, gestates the embryo, and then gives the embryo to the couple to raise. That you can't do. Because it causes undue psychological harm to the child because now the story of that child's life is okay so when we talk about what's my being from and what's my identity you know so their identity is like okay i have half my dna comes from this person half my dna comes from this person then i have this woman who gestated me and then i have these people who are raising me and there's attachment that takes place in utero, and so it becomes complicated, right? This is the part of the gay marriage argument that has not been articulated very well outside of some priest homily that I know, which is that when we talk about children, and people will say, oh, well, they can adopt, or they can do in vitro fertilization, or they can do surrogacy, we don't talk about the life story of that child, right? Because the life story of that child who has two same-sex parents is usually... Half my DNA comes from this dad. This dad, he's just here. I don't really know if I'm closer to my genetic dad than my other dad. Um, I look like him. I don't know where the other half of my DNA comes from. It comes from like donor number XYZ1257. And then I have this woman, and I grew in her womb for nine months and developed my whole emotional life, developed in union with her. But then I never saw her again after I was born. And why am I the way I am? And we don't think about that. There's a certain like peace that comes when we look in our family pictures and we notice like this is who I look like. And we recognize where we're from. We identify with people. And so it causes too much confusion about the origins of that person. And they come into a world where they don't know their own identity. And so what do we have to do? We have to build a whole construct in society that says you can choose your own identity. Which is kind of what we've done. Which leads to a lot of insecurity. Okay, so that's my embryo adoption thing. I can look for that paper, but I don't know where it is. I got in a fight with Livio Molina about it, but he was okay. Because he thinks you can never do it ever, 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 ever. And that we just need to, like, I don't know. He doesn't really say. Some people think we should just baptize all these embryos and then let them die. Because there's no moral solution. It's like, it's really, it's a, it's a mess. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. See you all tomorrow. All right. Thanks.